Lehman was insolvent because they'd lost too much on, you know, mortgage-backed securities and, and et cetera. But the real crisis came because <laughs> Monday morning, there were, there, Lehman had $600 billion in liabilities that people needed now because they had payments to make Monday morning at 8.01, uh-huh. right? And then all those people didn't get their payments at 8.01 and they couldn't make their payments. Uh-huh. That's what happens when you don't support your payment system. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real world economics, including modern money theory and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my three-part conversation with Scott Fulweiler on his 2008 paper, Modern Central Bank Operations, The General Principles. Last time in part one, we discussed some generic but related topics and then principles one and two. Today in part two, we discuss principles three and six. Next time in part three, we discuss seven through 10. My full and detailed question and summary list can be found in the show notes to part one. Also, be sure to check out the list of audio chapters at the bottom of today's show notes to find precisely where each principle and otherwise can be found. Principle three is that outside of a floor system, it's not possible for the central bank to target the quantity of reserves. This is for two reasons. First, as in principle one, banks need reserves to settle payments and meet reserve requirements. Both of these are rigid needs. Banks need exactly that amount, no more, no less. In other words, banks' demand for reserves is always vertical. Any less in the payment system and consequently society breaks down. Any more and the reserves sit around unused. The excess may earn a bit of interest, but outside of a Volcker shock, where rates are set up around 20%, it's not much. This means the amount of reserves in the system is determined by commercial banks, that is, it's endogenous, not by the central bank, which would make it exogenous. The other reason the central bank can't set the quantity of reserves outside of a floor system is because many transactions occur that are outside the central bank's control. A few examples are government spending and taxation, both of which the central bank must do, and calendar factors such as more cash being desired by the public as each weekend and vacation day approaches. Related is principle four, which is that all of these extra transactions must be offset. This is required if banks' demands for reserves is to be met, which is required to manage the payment system, which is required to have a stable society. Specifically, 
These extra transactions result in reserves entering and leaving the system in an uncontrollable and volatile fashion, making it less likely that banks' needs will be met. Therefore, the central bank must buy and sell bonds in order to keep reserve levels sufficient. Principle 5 is that reserve requirements are not for controlling reserve aggregates, which, as in the previous principle, isn't possible anyway, but rather an additional tool for reducing interest rate volatility. Although nothing changes what the central bank has to do, correctly designed reserve requirements allow the actions to occur at a more measured pace. They also provide some foresight and notification before some actions become urgent. Think of it in terms of the tickets and doors at a sports stadium. Everyone with a ticket needs to get in before the game starts and out after it ends. The doors and the tickets make it such that the crowd enters and exits in a controlled fashion, distributed over time. Finally, principle six is that volatility in the target rate can only exist within the central bank's corridor, meaning interest on reserves at the minimum and the discount windows penalty rate at the maximum. The decision to not regulate or not enforce existing regulations is just another form of regulation. When there is no deliberate floor or ceiling, as is our current reality, it means the highs will be dangerously high and the lows dangerously low. In the same way, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis is only true within the ceiling and floor set by governments. We could set a rigid floor and ceiling, such as with the job guarantee, but then, as Kaleski says in his 1942 paper, Political Aspects of Full Employment, if the government governs, then the rich and their feelings can't. This is why the rich pay our legislators to not legislate, especially when it comes to employment. Principles 7 through 10 come in part 3, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Scott Fallweiler. Enjoy. Distributed over time. Finally, principle six is that volatility in the target rate can only exist within the central bank's corridor, meaning interest on reserves at the minimum and the discount windows penalty rate at the maximum. The decision to not regulate or not enforce existing regulations is just another form of regulation. When there is no deliberate floor or ceiling, as is our current reality, it means the highs will be dangerously high and the lows dangerously low. In the same way, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis is only true within the ceiling and floor set by governments. We could set a rigid floor and ceiling, such as with the job guarantee, but then, as Kaleski says in his 1942 paper, Political Aspects of Full Employment, if the government governs, then the rich and their feelings can't. This is why the rich pay our legislators to not legislate, especially when it comes to employment. Principles 7 through 10 come in part 3, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Scott Fallweiler. Enjoy. Banks can only lend out so much of their reserves, right? It's kind of what is, is being said in fractional reserve lending. The multiplier is a idealized model where 
you take that fractional reserve lending process to its infinite, uh, I don't know what you call it, infinite loop conclusion, right? In the sense where you get $100 in reserves and you lend out, you know, you lend, you lend it out and then it comes back to you in 100 in deposits. Well, now you have to hold 10%. So you lend out 90 and you end up now with 90 in deposits. And so you lend out 90% of that. That's 81, I think. And then, you know, and you keep going and each time you're 10% less, right? And if you follow it to infinity, then you've basically turned that 100 into 1,000. Mm-hmm. And that's the money multiplier. But it's all coming from the reserve requirements. You're just following it to its logical, I don't know, infinite series conclusion, maybe we'd say. So that, that's where I'm saying they're, they're, they're basically the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and, you know, I hadn't thought of this till basically you were saying this is that, so you start off with 10, you can lend out 90. I believe that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. What are the well, chances you start that's hundred? Yeah. Start with a hundred and you yeah. can lend out 90 other. Yes. What are the chances that someone right now wants to borrow exactly 90? Like the chances of that seem low yeah. and then, you know, that right. keeps on getting smaller and smaller. So it's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. It makes no sense. Yeah. It, it <laughs> makes no sense. Um, and I should actually, there, there's, um, uh, if anybody's being really picky here, I should fix some of what I said. There is a, there is a very technical distinction between the two in the sense that the multiplier is not only reserve requirements. Um, it could be some of your customers, like to hold currency rather than deposits. Well, that's a withdrawal. So now that's fewer reserves that you have. In the, and as a bank, you might want to hold some excess reserves just permanently as a buffer. So that reduces the multiplier. So in more, uh, economists would say more sophisticated versions of the multiplier, it's still fractional reserve banking, but it's not completely driven by reserve requirements in the money multiplier framework in those cases. Anyway, they're still all wrong. So, but those are, those are the technical, those are some theoretical differences, I guess. Um, yeah. And it's all, and it was all based on the concept that you can lend out reserves, which is wrong just to begin with. So, um, all right. So principle three, the money multiplier, not only doesn't limit bank lending, it's impossible for the central bank to directly target reserve levels or the monetary base at all. It's only possible to directly target the price of that money, which is the interest rate. The monetary aggregate can only be indirectly targeted, which is inherently unreliable. Even if the central bank could magically manage the levels of reserves, because banks are not reserve constrained, it would not have a direct effect on bank lending at all anyway. So it's impossible for the central bank to control the level of reserves because there are many factors out of its control, which include fiscal policy, government spending that the the central bank has to do. Uh, taxation, which is just the other way that which is collected through the banking system that the that the Fed has to do, foreign policy, foreign exchange, the public's desires for cash and coins, for loans and for foreign products, I believe that's, mm-hmm. uh, and calendar factors like paychecks at the end of each week and more cash spending on the weekends and on vacation days and so on. Crises happen. Uh, the you know we just spoke about how much they process each day, and and then finally that. The central bank doesn't just manage the payment system. It also manages inflation and maximum employment, and it uses interest rates to do that as well, which I'm going to ask a question about later. Mm -hmm. So as we're about to discuss in principle four, all of these activities must be continually offset. 
Attempting to target specific reserve levels can only serve to degrade its ability to manage these offsets and therefore its target rate and therefore the payment system. So that's so, why. Go ahead. Okay. So let me, let me, uh, let me give a bit of, I don't know, context or nuance or something like that. Uh, going back a bit to principle two. So the point of the payment system is that because there are so many payments that have to settle, you can't set a constraint a hard constraint. You have to provide some credit at some price. So that's what the central bank does. And that's the elasticity in the system. Every central bank in some fashion, they don't all do it the same way, but in some fashion provides banks with the ability to settle with the ability to get reserves to settle payments, whatever they need, because you cannot mess with the integrity of the payment system. And so in the Fed's case, it is it gives banks overdrafts. If they go below zero, they get an overdraft, uh, very, very low interest rate, but they have to settle that by the end of the day. If they don't settle it by the end of the day, that's there's a big penalty. They clear it by the end of the day. There's a very there's a very big penalty on that. And so that's the discipline part of it for the Fed. So once you have that point, though, that the central bank cannot constrain the payment system, um, now you're at a point where how can you, as a, um, how can you believe in the money multiplier when there is a lower limit that you cannot go below at all in, in, in targeting reserves? And then the other point is you've got a very, very vertical demand curve for reserves because banks only have two reasons for it, right? The payments and the, and the reserve requirements. And in many cases, just the payments. And so if you tried to, to target the quantity of reserves, unless, it's ex unless the quantity that you're targeting is somehow exactly the same quantity banks want at the central bank's target rate, you are going to end up with creating a ton of volatility in interest rates. And, and in effect, you'll have the interest rate, if you provide just a few too many, you'll have the interest rate falling to zero or to the interest on reserves, whichever is higher. And if you provide too few, you'll have the interest rate going up to the central bank's penalty rate and banks will just borrow the amount that they need at that penalty rate and that'll be the interest rate. So, so basically what I was saying is if you try and target reserves, what you're doing is effectively de facto setting the interest rate either at your penalty rate or your interest on reserves, whether you're providing more or fewer than what banks want. And this is where post-2008 comes in because the Fed actually can target the quantity of reserves that it wants now. But the only reason it can is because it's already at a level of reserves way, way beyond what banks want to hold. Hmm. And so, so it's in a situation where essentially the interest rate that it's targeting is the interest on reserves. And so it just has, it has pushed. So, so think of a demand and supply graph, right? And so you got your demand curve and your supply curve there. And now you push the supply curve way, 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 way to the right beyond any portion of the demand curve, right? Hmm. 
price fell to zero, mm -hmm. right? Unless you set a price floor and then the price falls to the price floor. That's interest on reserves is the price floor in this world. Mm. And, and so, and so once you have, once you're okay with the interest rate being the price floor, now you can set the quantity wherever you want, as long as you're still to the right of the demand curve. And that's where the Fed is. That's what a floor system is that we have. Okay. I had yeah. never thought of it before, but not setting a floor is just setting it to zero. Yes, it's just a right. passive choice to set it to zero. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah, um, and that's what the Fed did until 2008. And there's kind of, well, no, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Well, they weren't allowed to. Well, there you go right there. There's your, you know, your question you asked me at the beginning on who's in control. Um, <laughs> Fed was asking Congress for years to be allowed to pay interest on reserves. And it wasn't until Lehman happened that Congress like, oh, I guess maybe you should be able to do that. Hmm. So you don't have to have the interest rate at zero all the time. Hmm. Okay. So. All right. So on to principle mm -hmm. four. Here we go. Mm -hmm. All right. So as in the previous question, the central bank does many things unrelated to interest rate targeting and many other things happen out in the world that, that are not directly in its control. This results in reserve levels moving in an unpredictable fashion, all of which must be offset if the target rate is to be maintained. One of the things out of the central bank's control is government spending. So now I want to talk about government spending. So mm -hmm. the way the government spends is mind, it's just mind twisting. I only learned this like last week, or at least like really start <laughs> to really understood it because I was struggling. I was struggling mm -hmm. with accounting. Like, uh -huh. I, I don't know. I did take an accounting class in college a long time mm -hmm. ago, and I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember anything from it. But whatever happened, I put <laughs> wrong stuff in my head. So when I started, tor you know, I'm, I'm taking Torrance, take my first course at Torrance, which is basically the intro to MMT class. Mm -hmm. And we had two weeks ago had accounting and I was struggling with like multiple stuff and which I won't mm -hmm. go into, but like really big stuff that was tripping me up. I couldn't come up with the questions. And then finally, you know, I, I realized these things. And this is one of the things that I realized, which is um, continuing on. The way the government spends is absolutely mind twisting. And understanding this is one of the keys, I think, to understanding national accounting specifically and modern money in general. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and this is all comes from the central bank is at the top. There's, they don't have a bank. There's nothing above them. Right. You know, we have a bank. The banks have a bank. The bank, the central bank does not have a bank. Right. Um, and so how this works is the government itself has a checking account at its central bank, yeah. which in the United States is called the Treasury General Account or the T mm -hmm. TGA. I believe that's correct. Right. This is the account where a number is raised in response to new spending voted on when a new law is passed. So, and when that money is then distributed to someone in the real economy, when it crosses over that border from, you know, the national government to, you know, the non-government sector, that same number is lowered again. And mm -hmm. that is like, that is government spending. That's the very nature right. of government spending is that number right. going up and down. Right. And then- the the number is raised whenever um, tax revenue comes in or a bond is sold. Yeah, yeah, so, and it. Yeah, I, so, I, yeah, or, I know it's not as simple. Right, it's, right, right. Or if the Fed were to just credit the Treasury's account. 
Correct. So in our current setup, there's the tax revenue and bond revenue, which is accounted for in there. And if they have enough, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. they don't need any more, but, but mm-hmm. just temporarily setting that aside. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So here's another example of the mind twisting. So the government has an account at its own bank. So when a mm-hmm. government, when the government sells a bond, it's paid for by the government. So the government does this by withdrawing a thousand from its account, the TGA, and handing it to the central bank. So to pay the bank, its bank, it withdraws a thousand from that bank and then hands it right back to the bank. And then at a future date, that bank has to pay its shareholders, its profit to its shareholders, which is the government. And how do they do that? They put that money right back into that same exact account. And you know, of, you know, of course, we're not talking about physically moving stuff, money. We're talking about numbers going up and down. But still, right. it's just like, wow, that is yeah. like understanding that is that's there's nothing deeper than that, as far as I can tell. So, and a final a final brief point before before okay, I, uh, is that so the government's account can go deeply negative without much mm. real world consequence. But since negative numbers stress uninformed people out we cater to their ignorance by making sure that it always stays positive yes so, go, go ahead yeah that and that is um yeah that's that's basically a a law that has been revised over time but since 79 it's essentially stuck that says the fed cannot just directly credit the treasury's account uh in that way so there are some nuances and in, in the class next semester, I'll, I'll show you some of those, but um, <laughs> the one, the one point that you, that you made when they spend and you said they give that to the central bank, I think what you were saying is the quantity reserves go up, right? Cause you, cause you reduce the treasury's account when they spend and you increase the quantity of reserves. And so uh, what they're, what they're actually doing is, is the Fed is are you talking debit- about a new law or are you talking about selling? No, no, no. Just, just when they spend. Okay. So, so when they, I mean, think of it, if, if you and I, oh no, that's not a good example. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe it's a good example. Suppose you and I, you and I are at this bank at the same bank, right? And, and I write a check to you. What's going to happen is the bank is going to debit my account and credit your account. Right. Mm-hmm. Just so that's what happens when the treasure, when the government spends is you, you could think of the government and all the banks as having accounts at the Fed and the Fed is their banker. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when the Fed sends a Social Security check or sorry, when the government pays it, pays, you know, Social Security payment to somebody. Treasury's general account goes down. The recipient, the, the bank of the recipient, their reserve account at the Fed goes up. Well, okay, hold on. So, so the, so the Fed doesn't have any that, money because the Fed, the Fed doesn't. Go ahead. Sorry. But before that happens, though, before it's received by the by the Social Security recipient, doesn't the TGA go up because that's what they send out, right? Bef- you the said TGA the number goes down. The TGA had to go. The t- to spend oh, no, the no, number no. goes down. Yeah, the the number had to be positive because, as as you said, people freak out. So they had to get the number positive through tax revenue or selling a bond. Mm-hmm. But when they spend, the number in the treasury account goes down and the reserve balance of the recipient's bank goes up. 
and the recipient's bank then credits the deposit account, the bank account of the recipient. All right. I understand that, but what I'm, I sure. feel like I'm missing something before that, which is, for so for example, Social Security mm-hmm. pays whoever, pays grandma $80. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, like, does the Social Security Administration send that money to the Treasury who then sends it out, or does the Treasury just spend it on behalf of of the social security administration. Yeah. All these folks have an account, uh, are, are all these different agencies and departments are spending out of the treasury's general account. Spending out of the treasury's account. Okay. Yeah. Because if you go look there and you can look at this online, just, um, daily treasury, Daily Treasury statement, Daily Treasury financial statement. I can't remember which one that which one it is, but if you just Google it, I'll look it up real quick here while we're. You can see every single day there's there's a record of all the spending that was done, all the revenues that came in, all the bond sales that happened, and. But basically, when the government spends for a new law, the number goes up. And then down, it goes up, you know, well, when the law is passed, and then it goes down when the money sent into the well, real economy. The, the law passing doesn't make it go up. The revenue or the bond sales what makes it go up. Uh, okay, then I'm missing something. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's just it's, like it's, it's not. It doesn't like seem you. like a huge. It's just like you, right? That 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 if you're going to spend, you have to have money in your account, right? How do you get money into your account? Well, you get money into your account by borrowing it or receiving income. Right now, there. Uh, that's going to make it sound like I'm not an MMT person. But, well, that's current. Uh, that's the current law. I mean, that's the that's current, the current law. law. And and there are ways that we get around that um, to where it's not actually a constraint. And 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 that would have ah. been that would have been a paper on general principles of treasury operations or <laughs> treasury debt operations, not government, uh, central bank operations. So that's not in there. Yeah. Just Google, um, daily treasury statement. Okay. Yeah. It's the first one. And, and you just go in there and they, uh, a little button says current daily treasury statement. And then they'll take you to a thing, uh, another page that basically has every day that's happened. And by, they do it by quarter and you can look at it and it's four pages long and you can see all the deposits and all the withdrawals hmm. and all the public debt transactions, et cetera, et cetera. But, okay. and you'll see if you, if you look through the list of who's spending out of the account, right. Department of agriculture, department of education, department of commerce, all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when you were asking me about social security administration and such, that's, you could look there and see what, yeah, there it is right there. Uh, Social Security Administration didn't spend very much the other day. Oh, yeah, month to date, they've spent, looks like about $70 billion, So, Okay. All right. So, all right. So, we could have it that the Fed just marks it up by whatever this, the whatever is in the new law for new spending. Mm-hmm. They could do yeah, that. But could. current requirements, current law says, you're not allowed to do that. You have to tax and borrow yes. that amount. Right, right. There's a way we get around it. Just 
any what listeners is, that think that we're saying anti-MMT stuff. This is Eric Tomoyne's paper. I think you're about to re- then release um, the concepts of Eric Tomoyne's yeah, interrelationship. Some, some of the ways, yeah, some of the ways that we that we have gotten around it are are in Eric's paper for sure. Um, yeah, and in general terms, what I would say is we uh, the central bank backstops the bond markets, the dealers that are buying the government bonds at the margin, at the auction. And what that means then is the we don't like the government to receive a direct loan from the central bank. That freaks us out. But <laughs> we don't get freaked out if instead the central bank makes a direct loan to dealers that buy the bonds. And that's the system we have. Right. Right. And then, so that, and, yeah, so that's what we've done is we've, we've just, we've just created an, a, a middleman basically. Right. Right. Um, all right. So anything else about principle four? Um, no, I mean, principle four again is one that is not so applicable anymore to countries running floor systems. Mm. It, it is applicable to countries that are still running Systems like the Fed ran pre to, pre Lehman corridor systems for countries that are targeting for central banks that target a repo rate. It's it's applicable for all of those situations, which there are uh, a number of central banks doing that still. You're talking but, about the offsetting, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, the offsetting yeah. stuff is not something say the Fed has worried about since since Lehman. Okay. All right, on to principle five. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so reserve requirements are related to interest rate targets, not control of money aggregates, uh, the yeah. amount of money. So, in one sense, in one sense, what's the purpose of having rules at all when it's guaranteed that the rule maker will do whatever it takes to ensure that rule followers will always follow the rules? You know, you're mm-hmm. always going to give your kid food. So, yeah. so it seems that reserve requirements are a tool to buffer against sudden volatility, like you said, uh, the yes. monetarists want it to be all be now, which would mm-hmm. be, you know, that'll work, but man, that will be a lot of basically you spend all your time having to do that. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that, uh, as mentioned in Stephanie Kelton's, uh, the 2000 version of her DuPont's taxes and yeah. bonds, finance, government spending on page mm-hmm. 607, she says that TTNL accounts, yeah, which are the treasury's accounts in, in commercial banks mm-hmm. are also, are as a major tool for buffering buffering the volatility of government spending and redemption. So these things don't stop the need for offsetting these things of of, um, the uh, central bank to have to offset things, but it makes it possible to have to not do it at such. Oh yeah. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At such a quick, extreme and unpredictable fashion. So in other words, they don't change what the central bank needs to do, but it helps them see it coming. Right. Um, Right. So, okay, so I'm go ahead. Um, so so the the tax and loan accounts are part of that offsetting uh, stuff in 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 uh, principle four, and so likewise, since Lehman, the the treasury has not used the tax and loan accounts either. Oh, okay. All so, right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, go ahead. All right, I have a completely unrelated question. So, if you wanted something, mm-hmm. with principle. no, go ahead. Okay, mostly unrelated. All right. So interest rates are for managing the target rate. 
which is for managing the stability of the payment system, which is Interest rates are for managing the target rate? Did you mean to say? Interest rates are for managing the target rate. The target wait, wait, rate, wait. is it? The target yeah, yeah, yeah. Rate no, 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 no. Okay, yeah, let's... let's. <laughs> all right, thank you. Let's start that again. The central bank manages its interest rates, which is for managing the stability of the payment system, which is for maintaining the stability of our society. But at the same time, the central bank is mandated, also mandated to manage, you know, some definition of inflation. Mm-hmm. And the only way it knows how to do that is by adjusting interest rates. <laughs> how how can these things not conflict? How I, I, it seems impossible okay. for that to not conflict. And it and if it's critical to keep interest rates stable, which it is, you know, and we would say that we should have it at mm-hmm. zero. But regardless, it, keeping it stable, whatever level they choose, is important. I think I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So during the Volcker shock, when he raised it to whatever seventeen twenty, whatever it was, mm-hmm. you want to keep it stable at that high of a level. And it seems it seems that kind of I think at least my instinct says that if it has to be kept stable and they choose for it to be at that high of a level, then it's extremely expensive to just have reserves. And so that's going to raise the banks are going to pass that on to customers and have higher whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, was there more to that? Uh, one second. Oh, okay, so so raising interest rates number one increases interest incomes on new bonds, further enriching the rich. It raises the interbank borrowing costs for banks, which are passed on to its customers. This results in business customers raising prices for their customers, and which is just another way of of lowering real wages. And then anyone with a variable rate loan, whether they're a borrower or a, a global South country, now has suddenly much greater difficulty paying it off. Um, so, so that's the end of it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this, this is a good place to go here because this, uh, gives the paper the correct context that, that it was written for. So what you're really talking about here is the distinction between strategy and tactics. Okay. So tactics, this paper is about tactics. It's about operations and tactics. So, and, and if and, I if I may, tactics are like short term, and strategy is like yeah, long term. Tactics is sort of your day to day thing. Strategy is more of, um, uh, yeah, more of a, a plan. How you set up your institutional structure, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. so for the Fed, strategy, a big part of the Fed strategy is where to put the interest rate target. Is it a three percent, four percent, five percent, fifteen? Right. Tactics are about how, if you choose 5%, how do you get there? How do you set it at five, right? What do you do to achieve your strategy? Yeah, what do you do to achieve the interest rate of five? And then if you change it to six, how do you move it from five to six, right? So tactics is not about the level of the interest rate at all. It's about whatever the target is, how do you get there? And so this paper is not making a judgment at all on where the interest rate is per se right so you're saying well we got to we got to manage inflation blah 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 blah. that's strategy right Mm. so uh, uh, i mean yeah if you want to have the discussion about strategy i'm going to agree with pretty much everything you just said um but you can still manage the payment system 
and not have it fail and set an interest rate target and, you know, do all these things that we're talking about in this paper with an interest rate target at 20, right? Now, the interest rate target at 20 will have huge repercussions, all the ones you said. And so not a good idea, but you can still manage the payment system at least, <laughs> right? Mm. Okay. All right. Simple enough. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, but but I want to ask this again, and I, I'm pretty sure you just answered it, but I just basically want to just hear it again. <laughs> Isn't using the target rate or interest rates to manage the payment system and to manage inflation as well? You know, their version of inflation. Doesn't that create an incredible conflict? Um. Uh, no, because, um, well, there's a conflict in using the interest rate target to manage inflation. I would say yes, but that's a different, that, that's not the context of the paper. The, um, you have to set an, an interest rate target and provide reserves at some price under some conditions to banks that need them to settle payments. But that's not saying, that's not making a judgment about whether it has to be 1% or 20%. Okay, because you can do it at either of those rates. Um, now, actually with the payment system on an intraday basis, it does work, it does seem to be the case that most central banks make that very, very cheap. like below 1%, mm -hmm. even when interest rates were much higher. But they have the penalty much higher if you didn't clear it by the end of the day. So the, uh, so setting the interest rate at 20% is not, is not in, uh, in, I'll say is not inherently in conflict with having all that elasticity in managing the payment system. Okay. So, so that the conflict is not in in how the bank works. The conflict is in real world consequences. Yeah, and if you don't allow the bank to just work, you're going to have real world consequences that are different from inflation and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So, because so, basically, if you were, if the Fed were just to say on Monday, we are um, well. It wouldn't be that big of a deal now because there's so much in excess, you know, there's trillions of dollars in excess reserves, but it, it wouldn't, it would still matter because there are a number of other requirements that have been added through what's called macro prudential regulations post great recession, post global financial crisis. Anyway, um, but if the Fed on Monday morning said, we are no longer providing any overdrafts, any loans whatsoever to the banking system for selling payments, at least back in 2007, you would have stopped the economy instantly. <laughs> right? I mean, because payments just couldn't happen. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why that was the whole thing with Lehman is Lehman was insolvent because they'd lost too much on, you know, mortgage-backed securities and, and et cetera. But the real crisis came because <laughs> Monday morning there were – there's, Lehman had $600 billion in liabilities that people needed now because they had payments to make <laughs> Monday morning at 8.01, uh -huh. right? 
And then all those people didn't get their payments at 801 and they couldn't make their payments. Uh That's what happens when you don't support your payment system. (laughs) It's instantly, you're just, you're shut down. Mm, Okay. All right. All right. All right. That, that, that helps. Um, And actually, I'm going to say a really obscure reference. Uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if you're going to get it. I, I you know, it's, <laughs> it's pretty obscure, but what comes to mind is, is uh, I'm just going to say the line is, is a lawyer who's, you know, basically, uh, you know, a, a slimy lawyer who protects bad guys, you know, to, his job is to protect bad guys. And then he gets a conscience. And so one of the bad guys calls him and said, I need help. And he's, and so he just screams into the phone, stop breaking the law. I- <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's a it's a reference from a, a movie that uh it's a mm-hmm. uh, liar liar with jim carrey oh yeah 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 oh man I love that. <laughs> okay sorry that's what yeah. you reminded me of um the bloopers on that are hilarious too all right so on to principle six okay all right so very mm-hmm. uh volatility in the target rate is only possible between the discount windows penalty rate at a maximum and the interest rate paid on reserves at a minimum the way you say it in your paper is potential volatility is determined by the width of the corridor. So here's a question about the target rate and the corridor or the band. And I, and I want to thank uh, Andrew Churguin who helped me with some of this. Um, mm-hmm. Let's assume a corridor with a width of 0.5%. Mm-hmm. So the minimum interest on reserves IOR is 1.75. Okay. The top, the penalty discount rate is 2.25. So 175, 225. The target Mm -hmm. rate is right in the middle at two. So they're all different values. If a bank is in need of reserves, the first thing it does is it turns to another bank. That bank Mm -hmm. may, you know, that bank, it may need to settle with that bank. Maybe it doesn't. It may try and get all the reserves from one bank. It might try and get pieces from, you know, a bunch Mm -hmm. of banks. In order to turn a profit, the banks that have excess reserves will make an, uh, an offer of a particular interest rate to the mm-hmm. bank in need. That rate will be somewhere within the band. It won't mm-hmm. be higher than the penalty rate because then the bank in need could just go to the discount window and pay the penalty rate, which is less than what was the bank offered. Mm-hmm. It won't be lower than the interest on reserves because the, the bank that with excess wouldn't offer something at, you know, at, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give away, not just, not just for free, but basically pay them for having it. They wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, uh, right. I lost my place. Uh, yeah, you've got, you've got with, it within this narrow band mm-hmm. banks with excess may compete with each other in an attempt to get the business of the bank in need. So if one bank offers, mm-hmm. you know, the ceiling, the, the the penalty rate, the top is 2.25. So the bank says, well, I'll, I'll give you 2.24. So it's just under. Another bank can come in and say, well, I'll give you 2.20, 2.20. And so they're stealing their business. And so there's com- competition, which I guess this, the central bank is fine with as long as it's within that band. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that uh, that – they, all the central bank cares about is, is is it between the top and the bottom? Is it between the IOR at the bottom and the penalty rate at the top? What I don't understand is what about the target? Do they care about the particular target? What's the point? What's the point of having mm-hmm. a particular precise target if all they care about is the top and the bottom? Mm-hmm. And at, at several points in your paper, you say if the target is set to the IOR is set to the bottom. So clearly there is something important 
about the particular target rate. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. missing something. So my question mm-hmm. is, at least, you know, whatever, I'm sure there's a better question, but mm-hmm. how does the central bank defend that precise mm-hmm. target rate? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, actually, that's a really, really good question. And you're, you're, um, it is completely accurate with regard to the way things work across central banks and, and across, say, history. Um, even today, there are there are a number of different approaches on this. So, for instance, uh, China's central bank, Singapore's central bank, there they don't they do not care on a day to day basis about precisely hitting the middle of the corridor. They are totally cool with it being on any given day um, up near the penalty rate or down by interest on reserves on any given day. The Bank of Canada, on the other hand, hits its target rate pretty much, well, and it kind of has a floor system still, or now as well, but when it didn't, it would hit its target rate almost exactly every single day without fail. So there are different choices. The Fed has gone from being more like China and Singapore in the 80s to being more like Canada by say 2007, 2008. So, so yeah, there, there are different ways of doing it. And Canada has a very unique way of doing it. Canada, you know how you were talking about all the offsetting stuff. Uh, Canada only has about 20 or 30 banks, whereas the U S has thousands. And so, it's much easier for the Bank of Canada to offset things going on on its balance sheet, like principal, I think it was four. And what it does then is at the end of the business day, it makes sure that it has offset everything that has happened to its balance sheet. And so then the only thing is left is banks that either are in excess or in deficit. And it basically then would open up at the end of business, a special 30 minute trading session and the banks with excesses would find the banks with deficits and they would trade right there in the middle of the corridor. And they had an incentive to, because if they didn't, they would be, you know, the ones with excesses would be earning interest on reserves and the ones with uh, deficits would be paying the penalty. So they both had an incentive right, to go right to the middle. But what the, what the central bank, the way that the central bank got there was by very precisely offsetting everything else on its balance sheet that happened. Is another way of saying that is that they provided the banks with exactly what they needed with not absolutely. excess? Yeah, absolutely. Well, ah. and, and well, and the, the <laughs> it's, it's exactly what they did because they're, they were a very unique case, although I, I often think that if we had learned, if, 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 econ- if students in economics learned how the Bank of Canada did things as the first central bank we learned about, we would have a much clearer understanding of how things work, because I think that they are one of the very best general cases. So what the Central Bank of Canada, Bank of Canada did they had no reserve requirements. And then they also, again, perfectly could offset everything on their balance sheet. 
and you had that 30 day, that 30 minute period at the end of the day where all the excesses would get together with all the surpluses. What did that mean? It meant that every bank overnight wanted to hold the exact same amount, which is zero. So their quantity of reserve balances overnight was always zero. No reserve requirements. So you didn't have to hold any of those overnight. You didn't have to worry about your ability to settle payments because you knew you were going to get an overdraft during the day. And at the end of the day, you could find some bank that had a surplus and they would want to lend to you. Wow. So, so the answer to the question, it seems that if you want a precise target rate, then you, if you continually offset so that you're mm-hmm. always at zero, so that you always know that you're the amount of reserves in aggregate mm-hmm. exactly match what banks need to settle. That, that mm-hmm. seems to be the answer. Wow. Really interesting. Okay. I think that's a general case. And, and so then to make it a, you know, to go from Canada to the U.S., what do you do? You add, you add about 5,000 banks. So now you can't perfectly offset, right? So now there's some banks aren't going to, you know, necessarily be able to all get together at the end of the day and only surpluses and excesses are there because you wouldn't know what you're going to get. And there were reserve requirements prior to last year. So there was a, a desire to hold a positive amount overnight in the u.s but basically if you start with canada you can you can just add on a few assumptions and get to any other central bank interesting and qe blows all this out of the water they're they're choose qe basically means where we don't care about a particular target well qe we only... is qe is a floor it means you're running a floor system but it means but if you have excess all those excess reserves then that means you're right. choosing not to hit a particular target Means you're hitting, I mean, means the floor. target you're trying, yeah, it means you basically said the floor is your target, right? Uh, okay. So, okay. so if you wanted 1% to be the interest rate target, you would put interest on reserves at 1%. Okay. Okay. So it's a kind of a more mm-hmm. passive way to set a target. Okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, makes, that mm-hmm. makes sense. It makes it easier to change it. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, all right. So, so, all right. So I want to ask a, what is kind of a goofy question, but I, I want to, just briefly hit on what the consequences of it might be. And that is what if they set the discount window, the penalty rate below interest on reserves, what consequences would that have? Well, that's an interesting question because, uh, well, below interest on reserves, that's hmm. like, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not, if it doesn't make sense, you know, I understand. So I mean, there's, okay. So there's a few different things that are coming to my head. So, Prior to 2003, um, so prior to 2008, the Fed was not allowed to pay interest on reserves. So the floor was zero, basically. Mm. But prior to 2003, the Fed had set the penalty rate below the target rate. Mm. And so that was awkward. And what would happen then is the Fed would say, here is the rate that we will lend to you. And it's a bit less than the target rate, but don't come to us unless it's a complete last resort, you know, your house is burning down, whatever. (laughs) And so, um, so banks wouldn't go to borrow from the fed until there was just, you know, a shortage of reserves in the system. Hmm. And, and the fed would be able to forecast for a given amount of space between the target rate 
and the and the penalty rate, how much um, banks would come to borrow, and so they actually made that part of the part of their operations of of um, figuring out how many how many operations they would have to do up to a certain amount, and then the rest would be people come to uh, banks come to borrow from them, and they would they would meet the rest of the demand that way. It's a very complex, unnecessarily complex system. And in 2003, the Fed joined the rest of the world in setting the penalty rate above the interest rate target. Um, it, it, it was there because of, um, it's called the discount rate. And frequently discount rates are, discount rates are the same thing as penalty rates, but they're not called discount rates because the rate is lower. They're called discount rate because of the earlier version, the, the earlier days, um, even pre-Federal Reserve, thing called discounting and rediscounting, which is that a bank that needed some funds, say maybe from the central bank or another bank, would take a, a short-term loan that it had made to some business and you know to finance inventories or something. And it would and it would basically um, use it as collateral to get a loan from another bank but it would always get less than the amount of the loan. So if you made a loan for $100 and you wanted to use that as collateral, you might be able to borrow 95, right? But that's what was called discounting because you were able, the, the loan you were able to get was at a discount of your collateral. Okay. And so that's where the term discount rate in central banking comes from, even though it's a rate that's now higher than the central bank's target rate okay. is because discount doesn't mean lower. It means that you're discounting the collateral. Okay. So right, anyway, so, a little bit of history. There. So, <laughs> so is it, it, I'm going to ask it again. So what if the penalty rate was set below interest on reserves? Oh, <laughs> I don't know exactly. I don't know. If that would, <laughs> I don't know if that would work. Um, there, there's a strange thing in the U S system where not every entity that has a reserve account earns interest on reserves. And it's those, it's those non-banks. It's the government-sponsored enterprises and the Federal Home Loan Bank and things like that. And so you do see the interest rate, the federal funds rate in the U.S., trading below the interest on reserves. Because um, those, ban those banks are willing to, sorry, those entities are willing to take lower than interest on reserves to get someone to uh, to borrow from them. It's not the same thing as what you're saying, but it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you set the penalty rate below. <laughs> I mean, it, basically what it, it would be a situation where. I mean, you're going to go to the penalty window and you're going to buy it. You're going to get yeah. it cheaper than IOR, but then you're going to be holding them. Yeah. Which means yeah. you're going to. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it would basically, so there's two ways to look at that. Sorry, I was looking at it one way and what you just said made me look at it the other way. There are two ways to look at it. One is uh, the way I was looking at it, which was actually the wrong, not the wrong, but the very um, uh, fringe or, or, you know, tangential way to look at it, which is the Fed pre-2003, which is the Fed set the, disc, the penalty rate much lower, but it had these so-called frown costs. Don't come to us unless your house is burning down or whatever. And so they'd wait until the rate was high before they'd come borrow from them, right? Mm -hmm. But what, 
now I realize from what you're saying that I was missing, I wasn't thinking of the obvious answer, which is basically what you're doing then is you're just subsidizing banks, right? Because you're saying borrow from us at one and we'll uh, borrow from us at one and we'll pay you two. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So huh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, all right. All right. That's good enough. All right. So on to principle seven, I'm actually like, sorry, that took me so long to, no, no, it's, it's a bizarre, one. it's a, it's an intentionally bizarre question. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually quite encouraged with all that I wrote. I was like, we're, we're going to go like four hours or something, but this, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So principle seven. Um, all right. This is a little bit long because. Yeah. And this is I, the one that doesn't matter so much anymore too. So. Oh, all right. Well, you know, like the, um, what was the other one we said that, oh, like, like four. Four. Yeah. All right. Well, it's still very interesting. So, um, but I, I rewrote this. Yeah. And I didn't have time to like kind of get it sure. down because, mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. I got it wrong at first. It, it, um, okay. Principle seven. In the context of monetary policy, the concept of liquidity effect is that extra reserves in the interbank market pushes down interest rates, which then stimulates banks to make more loans, which in turn increases economic activity. That's the theory. In other words, it's the false view that the interest rate is not something the central bank can arbitrarily decide. Rather, it's something that can that the central bank can only control or defend by offsetting the effects of market forces.
Today's part two of my three-part conversation with Scott Fulweiler on his 2008 paper, Modern Central Bank Operations, The General Principles. Last time in part one, we discussed some generic but related topics and then principles one and two. Today in part two, we discuss principles three and six. Next time in part three, we discuss seven through 10. My full and detailed question and summary list can be found in the show notes to part one. Also, be sure to check out the list of audio chapters at the bottom of today's show notes to find precisely where each principle and otherwise can be found. Principle three is that outside of a floor system, it's not possible for the central bank to target the quantity of reserves. This is for two reasons. First, as in principle one, banks need reserves to settle payments and meet reserve requirements. Both of these are rigid needs. Banks need exactly that amount, no more, no less. In other words, banks' demand for reserves is always vertical. Any less in the payment system and consequently society breaks down. Any more and the reserves sit around unused. The excess may earn a bit of interest, but outside of a Volcker shock, where rates are set up around 20%, it's not much. This means the amount of reserves in the system is determined by commercial banks, that is, it's endogenous, not by the central bank, which would make it exogenous. The other reason the central bank can't set the quantity of reserves outside of a floor system is because many transactions occur that are outside the central bank's control. A few examples are government spending and taxation, both of which the central bank must do, and calendar factors such as more cash being desired by the public as each weekend and vacation day approaches. Related is principle four, which is that all of these extra transactions must be offset. This is required if banks' demands for reserves is to be met, which is required to manage the payment system, which is required to have a stable society. Specifically, these extra transactions result in reserves entering and leaving the system in an uncontrollable and volatile fashion, making it less likely that banks' needs will be met. Therefore, the central bank must buy and sell bonds in order to keep reserve levels sufficient. Principle five is that reserve requirements are not for controlling reserve aggregates, which as in the previous principle, isn't possible anyway, but rather an additional tool for reducing interest rate volatility. Although nothing changes what the central bank has to do, correctly designed reserve requirements allow the actions to occur at a more measured pace they also provide some foresight and notification before some actions become urgent. Think of it in terms of the tickets and doors at a sports stadium. Everyone with a ticket needs to get in before the game starts and out after it ends. The doors and the tickets make it such that the crowd enters and exits in a controlled fashion, distributed over time. Finally, principle six is that volatility in the target rate can only exist within the central bank's corridor, meaning interest on reserves at the minimum and the discount windows penalty rate at the maximum. The decision to not regulate or not enforce existing regulations is just another form of regulation. When there is no deliberate floor or ceiling, as is our current reality, it means the highs will be dangerously high and the lows dangerously low. In the same way, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis is only true within the ceiling and floor set by governments. We could set a rigid floor and ceiling, such as with the job guarantee, 
But then, as Kaleski says in his 1942 paper, Political Aspects of Full Employment, if the government governs, then the rich and their feelings can't. This is why the rich pay our legislators to not legislate, especially when it comes to employment. Principles 7 through 10 come in part 3, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Scott Fallweiler. Enjoy. Distributed over time. Finally, principle six is that volatility in the target rate can only exist within the central bank's corridor, meaning interest on reserves at the minimum and the discount windows penalty rate at the maximum. The decision to not regulate or not enforce existing regulations is just another form of regulation. When there is no deliberate floor or ceiling, as is our current reality, it means the highs will be dangerously high and the lows dangerously low. In the same way, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis is only true within the ceiling and floor set by governments. We could set a rigid floor and ceiling, such as with the job guarantee, but then, as Kaleski says in his 1942 paper, Political Aspects of Full Employment, if the government governs, then the rich and their feelings can't. This is why the rich pay our legislators to not legislate, especially when it comes to employment. Principles 7 through 10 come in part 3, but for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Scott Fallweiler. Enjoy. <laughs> 